This morning I'd like to uh, read two passages of Scripture, first from the book of Genesis and then from the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. First in Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, the first six verses. This takes place right after uh, the flood and Noah and his family are coming out of the ark. They built an altar to God and offered sacrifices. And then God says this in Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and it, require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. And then if you will, go over one more book of the Bible to Exodus chapter 20, where we have the Ten Commandments. And I'll just read verse 13. You shall not murder. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Each year, thousands of churches across our land observe Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And you have to ask, why are Christians, why do they care? Why are we concerned? Why are we involved with starting crisis pregnancy centers and adoption agencies? Why have Christians through the centuries opposed abortion and infanticide? Why have Christians helped to start hospitals to care for the sick and infirmed and the defenseless and the disabled and the elderly? Why? It has to do with these words that I just read, and particularly the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Four simple words. Now let me tell you what this commandment is not, because this commandment, probably as much as any of them, can be very misunderstood and misapplied. This is not a prohibition against all killing in any and every circumstance. In Ecclesiastes, it says there is a time to kill and a time to heal. And so the commandment has been misleading to many because of the faulty translation of the word kill in most English Bibles. Therefore, some people have tried to use this commandment against all forms of killing. War protesters have used this verse, Thou shalt not kill in the King James. Even vegetarians have used this verse to oppose the killing of animals. Albert Schweitzer, the French missionary and physician of the early 1900s, he applied this verse to all of life. Flies, ants, even mosquitoes. So this is not a blanket prohibition to all forms of killing. Let me tell you what it does say. The word here, kill, actually means to murder or to slay or to assassinate. The Hebrew word, 
refers to the premeditated taking of an innocent human life. That's, that's the word. So the verse is properly translated as here in the English Standard Version, you shall not murder. Now, this command first appears in the passage we read in Genesis, Genesis chapter 9. After Noah and his family have come out of the ark after the flood, and it says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So this, this verse gives us the rationale, the rationale for the prohibition against murder. The reasons why it's wrong to take human life. Now, much of this message has been influenced through the years by a pastor you will not have heard of. Well, some of you will. Joel Gregory. Other things here on being made in God's image by Tim Keller. But human life is sacred. That means it's set apart from God. Now, I want to explain for the next few minutes what it means human life is sacred. That word sacred, we know it has religious overtones but we often don't really know what it means. So let me try and explain. Human life is different from that of animals and plants and other organisms because it's sacred. Now here are at least, there are many, but here are three reasons why God says human life is sacred. The first is it's priceless. It's priceless. For example, let's say you were to go into a local jewelry store and the owner is there. He manages the store he owns the store, and he works there behind the counter. And you see a diamond ring there off to the side, and you ask, how much would it cost? And can you buy it? And the owner says, no, 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 that, was, that ring belonged to my wife of 55 years, and she died a few years ago, and it reminds me of her. It is not for sale at any price. Now, what does he mean? He means nothing can be exchanged for it. That's what he means by that. So when God says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, he is saying there is nothing that can pay for human life because it is so priceless that you cannot trade something, you cannot exchange something else for it. So imagine if, if you came, if we came in here and said, well... If you, if you decide to kill another person, you will be paid $5,000, or you will have to pay $5,000 for that privilege. That would be saying that person's life is worth $5,000. If you say, if you kill this person, if you kill an innocent person, then you will go to jail for 30 years. Then you are saying that person's life was worth 30 years in jail. God says you cannot pay for it with anything except its own currency. It's a way of saying human life is infinite in value. Now we know, are y'all still with me? I know it's early in the morning. It's starting to warm up a little bit. I think my hands, are, they're not blue anymore. But if I hold them like this, I'm kind of warming up. Um, we know from studying some of the legal codes of the surrounding cultures at the time God gave these commandments to Israel, we know that human life had great fluctuating value depending on the cultures. Like if you remember from Western civilization, the Code of Hammurabi and those laws that were on that huge stone that we see pictures of in, in the uh, history books. Now, for example, 
We know that some of those cultures had laws that said if a rich man was murdered by a poor man, then the rich man could be empowered to go and slaughter that poor man's entire family, men, women, and children. That is if, the, if a poor man murdered a rich man. But if a rich man murdered a poor man, he only had to pay a, a, a sum of money back to the family. So what that was saying is your life has different value based on how much you have, whether you were rich or poor. Now here is God saying in this commandment, and this shows you how this elevated the view of human life, that no matter who you are, rich or poor, no matter your class, no matter your race, no matter your gender, every individual's life is priceless. There's no distinction here from between two people. It's infinitely valuable, and nothing can pay for it but itself. The second reason human life is sacred is because it does not belong to you. This is primarily when we hear the word sacred, that's what we mean. Like if you say, well, that's a sacred, that cathedral is a sacred place. You mean it's been set apart. It does not belong to anyone but to God, so to speak. Or this is a sacred thing we do. We do it only in relation to God. God owns it, so to speak. So when we say human life is sacred, we are saying it does not belong to you. But you are accountable for it because it belongs to someone else, for example. If someone came to you and said, look, I have, I have $1,000 right here, and I want to entrust it to you. I want you to take care of it. Uh, then you have to watch over it. If I come and I say, here's $1,000, it's yours, do with it what you will, then you can, you can do what you want. But if I say, here, I want you to, to manage this for me, I want you to take care of it, and I want to hold you accountable for that, then you're responsible because it's not yours. With human life, it's sacred because it is in your hands, but it is not yours. Therefore, you are accountable because it belongs to someone else. God is saying, for your lifeblood, I will demand an accounting. So he is saying to you and to me through this that every human life which comes into your life, whether it's someone working at the grocery store or whether it's the person delivering mail or whoever it might be, no matter what life comes into your life, you are accountable for that life because that life does not belong to you. Why does God say treat others uh, because we are accountable to him and that's because humans don't belong to us no human being belongs to you your children don't you, you may feel that they do but they really don't uh, your your spouse does not your friends your family no human being is yours to do with as you please as though that life belonged to you you do not have the right then to abuse or violate or discard that life as if it was yours. And so it's sacred because it is owned by someone else. The last reason that I'll mention is human life is sacred because we are made in God's image. Divine glory rests on every human being. I said this at a Wednesday luncheon one time a few years ago, and a woman came up to me afterwards who had been a victim of a great crime, or her family had, by two men that were, from what she told me at that time, were in prison. She said, there's no, there's no dignity. There's no dignity in those men. That, that's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm not talking about an external. They may act very undignified, but God's glory, human life, God's glory rests on every person because we're made in his image. That doesn't mean that we act in accordance with that. So God has put his stamp on you and on every person. So when we violate another human, we are attacking God's image. Those who understand she's sick, I think, with cancer. Remember years ago on Saturday Night Live when Sinead O'Connor ripped the Pope's picture? and Y'all remember that? I saw that. I was watching it. Uh, yeah, every once in a while. So, I, I mean, it was years ago. She ripped it, and there was this outcry. Was it outcry because she tore a picture in half in front of the camera? No, it's a picture of the Pope. She was making a statement. She took his image and was making a statement by tearing up the picture. And you can say, well, that's no big deal. She just ripped a picture in half. No, it was an attack on an image. It represented something else. That is what God is saying. When we attack creatures made in his image, we are attacking him. We are attacking him. No other parts of his creation are made in the image of God. So none expect... Ex- None possess that special dignity and value. We're different from plants and animals. So his commandment not to murder has never changed. You don't see Jesus in the New Testament saying, hey, but, you know, I'm going to reverse this thing. If, any, if anything, he intensifies it about murder in our hearts. and says it really begins much earlier, uh, the, the sin of murder, than we may think. Okay, just a second, please. They may be beautiful, but I never know what's going to happen when I'm sitting under those flowers. (laughs) To my voice. Okay. A little bit of history. Every few years I try to do something like this. It's been three or four years since I gave you some background of where we are with the, the whole issue about abortion. If you think this is relatively new or that started in 1973, I want to teach you some other things here. Why have Christians believed in the uniqueness and value in human life? And so how do we find ourselves? Where do we find ourselves as believers? In uh, 2014, as as Jill mentioned uh, earlier, 41 years after our Supreme Court made a decision. In reality, when you look at Western civilization, there have been three great historical movements uh, in regard to abortion. The first war on abortion, you might say, began in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, It was the Greek philosopher Plato in his Republic. I remember reading parts of the Republic in college. And that is a description of what an ideal society would look like. And he said, Plato said, in that society, any woman over 40 who became pregnant should have an abortion. And Aristotle wrote that depending on the size of a Greek family, beyond a certain number of children, any other should be aborted. And Aristotle gave a definition which placed itself in Western history and Western civilization for a thousand years. For Aristotle said, 40 days after the conception of a male, up to 40 days, natural law allowed for abortion. And he said 90 days after the conception of a female, natural law allowed for abortion. So it was very fundamental in Roman law throughout the Roman Empire that a fetus was not a human person. Now, what changed that? I mean, they were the power brokers. What changed that? Well, it was the emergence of the Christian faith in the first century. 
The earliest manual of the church after the New Testament was called the Didache. That's a Greek word for to teach. It was written shortly after the New Testament. It prohibited abortion. And when Constantine made the Christian religion legal in the Roman Empire, the Roman laws likewise changed prohibiting abortion. Then we have the early church fathers. These are the writers who came along after the New Testament, a guy named Clement of Alexandria, the great university town in North Africa, Tertullian, the lawyer and theologian, Jerome, Basil the Great, Ambrose, later Augustine, the great theologian of the early church, Thomas Aquinas, and then centuries later, Luther, Calvin, and then even into the last century, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. All of these, all of these spoke clearly and directly that the Christian faith prohibits abortion. So Christianity, you might say, won the first war against abortion in the early church. Now, the second movement concerning abortion took place in America in the 1800s, during the 19th century, because we inherited the English common law view of abortion. And that view says that abortion is legal or permissible until quickening. We don't hear that word much anymore, do we? Quickening. That is, until the mother felt the movement of the baby in the womb. But obviously, that's very hazy. That was very ambiguous. And because it was ambiguous, it made virtually any kind of law impossible to enforce. And by 1840, 18 years before this sanctuary building was built, there were few laws on the books prohibiting abortion, and those that did exist were not enforced. And so it's not surprising then that during the 1800s, abortion shot up across America. The average size of an American family in the year 1800 was seven children. In 1900, it was three and a half children. It was estimated that between 1800 and 1900, one-fifth to one-third of all pregnancies ended by abortion. Did you know that? Am I saying anything? You don't read this, do you? I mean, you don't, it's not easily accessible. It's there. I'm not making it up. You can fact-check me on your phones if you want to right now. In 1838, in 1838, the New York Herald and other newspapers in New York City ran extensive advertisements for abortion clinics. 1838. And who opposed it? One of the opposing voices, there were several that opposed it, but one of the opposing voices in the 1800s was the newly formed AMA, American Medical Association, in 1847, whose first cause was the opposition to abortion. The Presbyterian Church in the United States, our old denomination, made its first pronouncement about abortion in 1869. Uh, prepare yourself. Here's what they said. This assembly regards the destruction by parents of their own offspring before birth with abhorrence as a crime against God and against nature. And as the frequency of such murders can no longer be concealed, we hereby warn those that are guilty of this crime that except they repent, they cannot inherit eternal life. Can you imagine them now saying something like that? 1869. You may also be very surprised to learn that another group who opposed abortion in the late 1800s was the feminist movement. 
that stated abortion was abusive to women, and it was crowned by the Comstock Act of 1873, which made advertisements for abortions illegal. Now, we are in, at least as far as America is concerned, what I would call the third great abortion war. The Planned Parenthood organization, the largest provider of abortions in America, supported heavily by our tax dollars and by men like their number one donor, Warren Buffett, they began quietly to promote abortion as birth control. Margaret Sanger, who died in 1966, she was the founder of Planned Parenthood. Now, ironically, and most people are stunned when I tell them this, but I read it firsthand. I have my primary sources. Margaret Sanger originally opposed the practice of abortion. In 1920, she wrote a book called Woman and the New Race, and in there she wrote, while there are cases where even the law recognizes an abortion as justifiable if recommended by a physician, I assert that the hundreds of thousands of abortions performed in America each year are a disgrace to civilization. In 1967, the National Organization for Women endorsed abortion in light of what they said was, quote, the world population explosion. And the sad truth is that in the 1960s, there was only one resounding voice speaking against the abortion movement, and it was the Roman Catholic Church. It certainly wasn't the Protestants. The Presbyterian Church, the same denomination that in 1869 had condemned abortion as murder, 101 years later in 1970 reversed its long-held position on abortion and all of that paved the way for the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 legalizing abortion on demand. And that was 41 years ago, 50 to 55 million legal abortions ago. So why don't we just give up? Pro-life advocates contend that elective abortion unjustly takes the life of a defenseless human being. And so the question is, is the unborn one of us? If so, killing him or her to benefit others is a serious moral wrong. <laughs> if the unborn are not human, then elective abortion requires no more justification than having a tooth pulled. So the differences boil down to what one person has described as SLED, S-L-E-D. First, size. An embryo is smaller. When you were an embryo, you were small. But since when does your body size determine your value? Some of you would have more value than others here based on body size. L, level of development. You're less developed as an embryo, but why is that decisive? A one-year-old is less developed than a teenager, physically and mentally. But we don't think that makes them not have a right to live. E, environment. Where you are has no bearing on what you are. How does traveling eight inches down a birth canal suddenly change the essential nature of the unborn from, being, from a being we can kill to one we cannot? Eight inches. Degree of dependency. Sure, you depended on your mother for survival, but since when does dependence on another human being mean we should kill you? Now, in short, humans are equal by nature, not function. We share a common human nature of being made in the image of God. Now, I know that as a pastor, there's a, there's a great pastoral side. I, I, that was the educational side. 
in closing, let me just make a couple of comments from a pastoral work. 80% of women who've had abortions say they were pressured to do so. That is a very important, a very important fact. Pressured to do so. So I want to say a word to those who've been involved. Whether you were the boyfriend or the husband who twisted that arm or the father or the mother who demanded it or the grandparent who paid for it or the woman who experienced it or even the abortionists who carried it out. What about forgiveness? The beginning of forgiveness is confession. One reason we need to call it what it is is because you can't gain forgiveness if you don't recognize the sin. 1 John 1, 9, we quote it often around here, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God says through Isaiah the prophet, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. So no sooner, no sooner than you seek his forgiveness, then boom, it's granted. Then God says, forgiven, freely, forever. That's how he treats it. So we can never hear the gospel enough. The good news that tells us that God created us in his image to worship and enjoy him. But because of our rebellion against him, we are separated from him. But he provided a redeemer, Jesus, a substitute, the perfect one. He poured out that punishment that we deserved on him. He died. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He ascended where he is right now at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He offers forgiveness. He offers new life to all who accept that gift of what God has done. So have you received that? My pastoral word, if not, do so today by faith in Christ. There is no sin, no sin, however blatant however um, subconscious that God can't forgive. The second pastoral word, especially to young people that are here. I saw a, a news article on ABC in November 2009, and it said this, and this was a st another stunning statistic, that an estimated 92% of all women who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome choose to terminate those pregnancies. 92%. It's also true that there are a waiting list of couples willing to adopt children with Down syndrome. So I want to say a word to young people because sometime down the future, you may be faced with a decision that you think leaves you no options. And you may say, my life is over. My life is over if I don't make this decision to end this. And you may even say, I don't think it's right. In fact, I don't disagree with what the Bible says. It's just I don't have any options. My back is against the wall. Well, I want you to think God has a plan bigger than you, and he's got a plan even for those little ones and for many, many other people. Our disabled son, Stephen, coming up on 17 years old, would have been a target this big for abortion. I had a nurse in the intensive care unit rebuke me that we had allowed him to be born. How was that for a bedside manner? But God has taken care of that little fellow. God has a unique plan for his life, whether he can verbalize it or not, whether he knows it or not. And it's just not my life. 
life. It's not Barbara's life. It's not the church. It's his life, too. God has looked out for him. I don't know how. I'm continually amazed. So don't leave God out of the equation. As a pastor, I would urge people that are on the verge of making hard decisions, wrong decisions, but they feel, I'm not saying it's not sin. It is sin, but I don't have a choice. Well, you do have a choice. And don't leave God out of the picture. Why do you think over and over when the angel proclaimed the birth of Christ, he called him Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. You are not alone. Even if your parents or others abandon you, you are not alone. Don't leave God out of the equation in what he may do. I, would, I don't know who said it, but I wrote it down long ago. I would rather have a difficult life doing the will of God than an easy one outside of his will. I would rather have a difficult life doing the will of God than an easy one outside of his will. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, our Creator, how you spoke into existence ages ago, everything that is, we don't understand. From the stars that are so huge and far away to the molecular world that we, that we almost study in theory because it's so small. And the power in those forces in your creation, truly, we say with the psalmist, it, it is, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, Lord, we pray for conviction and trust. Often we lack faith. Lord, we lack faith to believe that you are at work and can work in very, very difficult circumstances. And we pray for forgiveness for our land. We think we don't, don't even talk about the other countries and where this is. Uh, we pray that you would rule and overrule, that you would bring change that begins in the heart. It won't begin in the law, it begin in the hearts. And so we pray that we would value life most of all because we fear you and seek to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.